Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're studying verse by verse through this great gospel. We're coming to uh, what I've titled today, The World's Greatest Sermon. Um, Let me uh, temper your enthusiasm. This is not the one, okay? I'm preaching a sermon about the world's greatest sermon. I think you probably already figured that out. Luke chapter 6, verse 17. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people, which all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed by their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. Turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. You recall that uh, earlier in this chapter, Luke records how Jesus had gone up on the mountain all night long to pray to the Father. And when the sun came up the next morning, he called his disciples up on the mountain with him. Now, we don't know how many disciples were traveling with Jesus at this time, but many. And out of those many, he chose 12 men that he gave the title of apostle, which meant sent out one. And these men would be the ones that he would spend the vast majority of his time for the rest of his earthly ministry. And so Jesus comes to the crowd then, and Luke says uh, on a flat place, on a plain, he began to heal and to teach and to cast out demons. Now, I believe that this is the same sermon recorded in the Gospel of Matthew that we commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. That is the world's greatest sermon. There are, of course, some subtle differences between the two accounts, but we can expect that. Often say that if... uh, four people witnessed an event, they would have four different interpretations of that event. And God, the Holy Spirit, has inspired four different men, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, to tell the same truth, but all from unique and different perspectives. For example, John, in his gospel, thematically presents Jesus as God, primarily. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mark presents Jesus as a servant. Matthew seeks to prove that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. But Luke was writing specifically to one man, a Gentile man by the name of Theophilus. And so it stands to reason that he would have a different perspective, yet it is the same truth. Now some theologians believe, though, that these are two different sermons, preached at two different times. Uh, Still a third group believes that they were not specific sermons at all, They were just the compilation of the things that Jesus commonly taught as he went from village to village, but town to town. The problem with that point of view is Luke is a historian, and he presents this as a moment in time. And so therefore I teach and believe that this was a specific sermon, and it was the same sermon that Matthew references in Matthew 5 through 7. Now Luke gives 30 verses to the Sermon on the Mount, whereas Matthew devotes three entire chapters Luke's is obviously a condensed version, but the truth is Matthew's was likely a condensed version as well. You can read the entire Sermon on the Mount, the long version in Matthew, in about eight to ten minutes, 
And I certainly, as a pastor, don't believe Jesus was saying that was the norm. He uh, is, is giving us just the highlights and the condensed version. Now let's look at uh, these verses as we walk through them. Verse 17, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. So here we have the preacher. In the New Testament, Jesus is presented in his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. Now as a priest, he makes sacrifices. That's what priests did in the Old Covenant, right? They made sacrifices. But the book of Hebrews says not only is Jesus the priest, he is the sacrifice. He is the once for all sacrifice that never has to be repeated. But he's a priest in that he does what priests did. He interceded. He stood between God's wrath and the people. And he is ever interceding for us, isn't he, in heaven. And then in his office of king, he rules and reigns those who are his. And he's doing that in the world. But in this portion of scripture he's presented as the prophet. A prophet is one who proclaims the message of the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Wherever he went he preached. He preached repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached the same message as John the Baptist. And so the preacher here is none other than the Lord Jesus. Remember that after he had prayed he calls the twelve and now they come with him. And I, I can picture them surrounding him as he's preaching out to the audience. And from this point on until his crucifixion, he would do this. He would preach. But as he was doing this, he was also, the scripture says, healing the sick and casting out demons. Now you put those three things together that Jesus was doing, preaching, healing the sick, and casting out demons. We see what Paul shows us in Philippians chapter 2. That is Jesus' authority in all realms. Uh, the, the fact that he taught shows that he is an authority in the, in the area of the intellect, of the mind. The fact that he healed shows us that he has authority over the body because he is the creator. And the fact that he cast out demons shows that he is the ruler even in the spiritual realm. Paul says it's this way in Philippians, that one day every knee will bow to him and his authority of things in heaven, that is the angelic beings, of things on earth, that is humanity, and things under the earth, the demon realm, all will one day recognize his authority and lordship. And he's proclaiming it here through his teaching, through his uh, healing, and, and through the casting out of demons. And so Jesus obviously is the preacher of the greatest sermon because he is the greatest preacher. Secondly, we see the audience. Let's look at it now. Verse 17, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. Now there is, uh, there are rather three significant groups of people here and then a fourth that is implied. And the first is the 12. When it says he came down with them, he's speaking of the previous verse where he has listed the names of the 12 apostles. Once Jesus has, cho once Jesus has chosen those 12, now they come with him down to this level place on the mountainside where he's going to teach. So we have the 12. And then you have what he calls a large group of disciples. Now remember the word disciple simply means a follower. And so some historians estimate there were between 10 to 20,000 people at this particular site. And, and many of them claiming to be students or followers of Jesus. Now wherever Jesus went, these people followed him. And some of them, of course, were genuine. They understood the gospel. They repented of sins. But it seems as though the vast majority of them 
were not real. We read in John chapter 6 that when Jesus started teaching the hard things, that most of these people left and went back to what they were doing before. And so Jesus, of course, knew who was who. But he, by the way, he tells us in the church today, it's not our job to do that, right? He tells the parable of the wheat and the tares, the good fruit and the weeds. It's not our job to go around trying to pull the weeds out of the church. We proclaim the gospel, but only God knows a person's heart. So he says, leave them alone, and in the end, it'll all be made clear. And so Jesus understands not all these people are, are genuine. And then there's a third group he simply refers to as a great throng of people. And these people were the intellectually curious. They probably heard about Jesus now that he passes through their region. They see people running from their storefronts, from their homes. They're caught up in the crowd and they're just there. They don't make any commitment to Christ. They don't claim to be a Christ follower, but they're there. Uh, and the Greek word really means curious. They came because they were curious. What a diverse group this is. Luke says they came from all over Judea, which encompasses not only this region of Galilee, but down into Jerusalem. And he even extends it to the Mediterranean Sea, to the northwest, to an area called Phoenicia, where the great cities were Tyre and Sidon. And you probably remember that the cities of Tyre and Sidon had the same reputation as some other ancient wicked cities. When you heard the names Tyre and Sidon, it elicited a thought of a sin city. And so that tells us that people who were pagan, people who were religious, they all came to hear Jesus. And the fourth group that is implied, the Pharisees. Because remember earlier Luke said wherever Jesus went, the Pharisees went with him, hoping to catch him in a fault, hoping to trip him up. And so here you have the audience. Now thirdly, we see the setting. You'll note Matthew says it's on a mountain. And Luke says it's on a plane. Now that has tripped a lot of people up. But uh, if you've ever been to Yosemite National Park out in Northern California, you'll understand. Uh, Yosemite uh, has several beautiful landmarks, the greatest of which, in my opinion, is a mountain called Half Dome. And it's just a big block of granite. And these guys climb up the sheer face of it, but guys like me go up the path the long way. And if you make it to the top, though I wouldn't even attempt it today, but many years ago I made it all the way to the top, and it's as flat as a table. You would not know, unless you knew where you were standing, that you were on a mountain. And so such is the case in some of those mountains around Galilee that circled the Sea of Galilee. You'd have a sharp face, and then they'd have an outcropping or a plateau. And really the Greek word here just says he came to a flat place. And that's where he was meeting with these people, and he was teaching. It was outside. There was no electronic amplification because it didn't exist yet. This was a natural amphitheater where he could be heard. This was uh, beside the Sea of Galilee up on a high place. You'll note it was not in an ornate building or a cathedral. They did not have mood music. They did not have smoke machines. They did not have PowerPoint. Now what does this tell us? It tells us that the Word of God is enough. It's enough. Uh, look, I'm glad to have some of the accoutrements we have today. I'm glad we have padded pews. I'm most especially grateful we have air conditioning, aren't you? In the Texas heat. But even if we didn't, we would still be the church. The Word of God is proclaimed here. And the church is where God's people come together and where God's Word is proclaimed. We don't need ornate buildings. We don't need all those other things. 
We do need Jesus. And Jesus was present there. Now, the point is the message, not the accoutrements. Now, we try to practice that here. I hope you have noticed as a staff and as a church family, we emphasize steak over sizzle, substance over style. The fact is the message is more important than even the miracles. Now, a lot of people came for the entertainment value of seeing Jesus perform miracles. And so uh, there are those today who claim to be miracle workers and faith healers, and they draw a large crowd of those who come to be entertained by the show. And Jesus was not putting on a show. Jesus' miracles were for the express purpose of verifying his truth claims. Now we know that because of something Luke wrote about a miracle that Jesus performed a little bit earlier. Remember those men who let their friend down through the roof of the house, down to the foot of Jesus. And when Jesus saw this man obviously afflicted, obviously in need of healing, he did not immediately say, stand up and walk. He said, son, thy sins are forgiven thee, right? And he did that not only for the benefit of that young man, but for the benefit of everyone in the room, especially the Pharisees. Because knowing their heart, he knew that they would not rejoice that this man was being healed or that his sins were being forgiven. They would Find this an opportunity to accuse Jesus of blasphemy because only God could forgive sins. And so Jesus, knowing the heart, says, do you think it's strange? What, what is easier to say? Thy sins be forgiven thee or stand up and walk. But to show that the Son of Man has authority over all those realms, what did he do? He healed that man. Not only did he forgive his sins, he healed his body. But the miracles were secondary and subservient to the main message which was proclaimed from the lips of Jesus. And so the pro proclamation of the Word of God today is essential. It is central to what the church does. In fact, it is more important than miracles. The miracles simply verify the fact that Jesus had the authority. Now, then we come to the most important part here, which is the message. The message, not the audience, not the surrounding, it's Jesus and his message. It has often been noted, correctly in my estimation, that Jesus is the master teacher. And it stands to reason that the master teacher would preach the master sermon, of which the Sermon on the Mount is. And he teaches, of course, with authority. In fact, if you go back to the book of Matthew today and read all three of those, or four of those chapters, that uh, cover the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of that, I believe in chapter seven, the people go away amazed saying, this man teaches with authority. In fact, another passage of the gospels, a group of men went to hear Jesus preach and they came back and reported that no man has ever taught like this. And we would have loved to have been there, right? We would have loved to have a recording of Jesus teaching, but in his sovereignty, God has chosen to have it written in condensed form in the Word of God. By the way, this is all He intends us to know, and it is enough, right? We have everything we need the Lord has given us right here in the Word of God. But there are, unfortunately, some very shallow understandings of, of this sermon and, and some outright wrong understandings of the Sermon on the Mount. The, the most popular one is this, that the Sermon on the Mount is an ethical paradigm by which Jesus wants all humanity to live. Now you might have noticed that 
Not everyone in the world who's not a Christian is vocally hostile to Jesus Christ. Even if they are hostile to Christians and the church, they tend to have a favorable impression of Jesus the person, right? Because they tend to think of him as a misunderstood political figure or a uh, moral warrior or a misunderstood prophet. Jesus was none of those things. Jesus is who he claimed to be, God in the flesh. And so when Jesus came to earth, when he preached, he preached a message of redemption and salvation, not a message of moralism. What I mean by that is this, no human being can live the way Jesus taught us to live without the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> We're just not capable of, of doing that. He came to set us free from sin and sin's bondage so that then we could live the way he calls us to live. We sang on the song, you saw it on the screen, not by works that I have done. We can't keep the law well enough to please God. We have to come to an end of ourselves. And by the way, this is the message of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's understood by so many wrongly to say that there is something inherently good about being poor or being hungry. So let's just read this sermon beginning in verse 20, and I'll show you what I mean. And turning his gaze towards his disciples. So he engages out of those four groups, those who claim to be followers of his primarily. And he began to say, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Now here we have Jesus laying out this great sermon very simply. By the way, I think what makes a sermon great is its clarity, not its profundity. The desire is that people would understand it. And so Jesus simply puts uh, two categories here. Have you noticed that as you study the Bible? How many times God distills everything down to two? He says, you're either in or you're out. Jesus says there's in the day of judgment, the sheep and the goats. David says there is the righteous and there are the wicked. And here Jesus says the two groups of people are the blessed and the cursed. Now he's not saying if you live like this, you can expect a blessing. And if you live like that, you can expect a curse. He's saying the blessed are those who have these things in common and the cursed are those who have these things in common. And there's four each. And the first blessing is found there in verse 20 when he says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, one of the great hermeneutical principles that you'll study if you go to seminary is the fact that scripture must be interpreted with scripture. And so Matthew gives us a little more detail than Luke does. And so we go to Matthew to help interpret Luke. When he says, blessed are the poor, he is not saying there's something inherently great or wonderful about lacking. 
There's just not. Now, now the Bible has plenty to be say to say to be sure that we're not to put down the poor or abuse the poor, that we are to help the poor. But the Bible doesn't say that, that having money is a sin. In fact, some of the great men of the Bible were wealthy. Abraham, Solomon, David, Job, others. Uh, I think it's a great misunderstanding that to be too poor is, is a blessed thing. Now, it's not a shameful thing, but it's not inherently blessed. When I was growing up in rural Mississippi, there were still plenty of uh, people around at that time when I was a boy who lived through the Great Depression in the South. And they loved at church, sort of a pastime of older people, was to play the game of which one of us was the poorest during the Depression. So you always tried to one-up the other person. And I remember people saying, well, we were so poor, all we had were, were uh, sweet potatoes. And we'd have that for our supper. And if there were any left over, Mama would, would put them in a, a bag and we'd take that and we'd eat that the rest of the week for our lunch. And that's all we had. And that really happened, by the way, and, and in my family. There's nothing shameful about that. But, but as this little game went on, I was listening one day and finally it came to this one gentleman and he said, well, let me tell you how poor we were. And everyone came close to listen. And he said, we were so poor, we had dried beans for breakfast, we drank water at lunch, and we swelled up at night for dinner and went to bed. <laughs> and nobody ever challenged him again on who the poorest was. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He was talking about spiritual matters. That's why Matthew adds, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? He's saying the blessed are those who've come to the end of themselves and are spiritually destitute and desperate. By the way, this Greek word rendered poor here in our translation is not just lacking in certain things. It means absolutely beholding to others. We could really say, blessed are the spiritual beggars, those who depend totally on others. Isn't that what the gospel teaches? That for us to be saved, we have to recognize our absolute need for salvation outside of ourselves, And we have to come to Jesus on his terms. And the picture that Jesus gives of the person coming with that attitude is of the publican who went down to pray, who could not lift up his head, but said instead, Lord, have mercy on me, what? The sinner. And so Jesus said, that man went down to his house justified. That's what it means that the blessed ones are the ones who are poor in spirit. An absolute prerequisite before a person can be saved is humility. You can't come to the Lord with your head held high. You have to come to the Lord on His terms, which is broken, empty, nothing to negotiate with, no leverage, and you pour yourself on the judge and beg for mercy. On Wednesday night here, we're studying through some of our favorite psalms I invite you to come at 6 p.m. up in room 245. And uh, this past Wednesday and again this coming Wednesday, we're looking at the 51st Psalm. And you might recall that the 51st Psalm was written by King David after his sin with Bathsheba was discovered. And he just pours out his heart as only a poet could do. And he asks the Lord to cleanse him thoroughly, wash him thoroughly, cleanse him with hyssop, and, and, and he asked that the joy of salvation be restored, that the bones which God had broken would be healed. That is the picture. Here's a man, King David, of which the women sang songs around the campfire. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. He was the untouchable. He was the 
um, unchallenged monarch, and yet God brought him low. And the Holy Spirit convicted him by a prophet who proclaimed the Lord's message. God's Spirit convicted David of sin, and God heard his cry out of contrition. In fact, David said the sacrifice that the Lord takes note of is a broken and a contrite heart. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. What about you, dear friend? Have you come to the Lord on his terms? Or are you, deal, are you still holding on to some notion that you would be a good addition to his team? And really, every week when we open the word together and we give the invitation, it's really a repeat of what happened that day on the side of that mountain. Every time when we open the doors and people come to worship here, we have all four of those groups that came to Jesus. We have uh, apostles. Remember we saw last week that that word means sent ones, those who are taking serious their faith and they're sharing with other people. You have a large group of people here who we would describe as disciples. They're learning, they're growing, they're identifying with Christ. Some of them are genuine and some may not be. They're all along the continuum of uh, what it means to be a Christian. And then you have the curious, people who come in off the street or they're invited by a friend and they don't really know what to think. They've heard what's going on here and they want to see it for themselves, make their own judgments. And then unfortunately we still have some Pharisees that come and they come for no other reason than to criticize others. And, and, and that happens not only in our church but in every church across the world almost every week. But it doesn't change the message. And the message is this, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the other side of that is those who don't call upon the name of the Lord will not be saved. And Jesus, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, pronounces a woe, which is what you say when you realize something heavy is on top of you. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, said, woe, woe is me. For I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Which category are you in? Now, I say there's four kinds of people who come to worship every week, but there's really only two kinds of people. There are the blessed and those who are the cursed. The blessed are those who have had their eyes open to their spiritual poverty. They've cried to God for mercy. He's heard them, and He's saved them. This other category is all the other people of the world who have yet to do so. And here's the wonderful good news. Today is the day of salvation. Right here in this room, right where you are, you can call upon the name of the Lord in humility and contrition and brokenness. Turn from your sins. He'll hear your cry. He will save you today. He'll forgive your sins. He will fill you with His Spirit. He'll make you part of His church and He'll use you for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and I thank You for the Sermon on the Mount and how it's blessed Christians for 2,000 years. And You're still using it to draw lost souls to You by Your Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that would happen today. If there's even one in this room who does not know You and the free pardon of sin, Father, I pray you would squeeze out of them at this moment any hint of self-righteousness, that they would become desperate, hungry, 
a spiritual pauper in your eyes, Lord, that would hold their hands up and turn out their pockets and realize they don't have anything you need. And they would call upon you for mercy. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you've led so many in this room to do that in the past. And they are walking with you as your disciples. And Father, we pray that our faith would be proven to be genuine through spiritual fruit. Lord, do your work among us today by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.